This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good afternoon and welcome to Suite 212, a show putting the arts in their social, cultural, historical and political contexts, here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm your host, Tom Overton. Today's show develops some of the ideas discussed in previous shows you can find on our SoundCloud page or through our Twitter at sweet underscore 212. One is the discussion of the legacy of George Orr, which Juliet had with Owen Hatherley and Fatima Ahmed. Another is the discussion that Lara had with, with uh, Isabel Weidner about queer and working class representation in experimental writing, how useful such labels are and what queer authors can take from a modernist canon that is largely white, male, cisgender, heterosexual and middle class. One interesting response to that was uh, what Jennifer Hodgson, who's currently writing a book on the writer Anne Quinn, uh, said. She quite used a nice uh, James Fenton quote about Lorna Sage. Uh, she said and thought that realism was simply a way of keeping the working class in its place. For today's show, I'm joined by the author of a book, The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question, which tracks back to the 1930s to consider some of those questions and reframe how we consider them today. Uh, Nick Hubble. Hello, Nick. Hello. Uh, Nick Hubble is reader in English at Brunel uh, University London and co-director of the Brunel Centre for Contemporary White Writing. Uh, their research interests include modern and contemporary literature, science fiction and fantasy, mass observation, proletarian fiction, the cultural history of suburbia and the social humanities. They've got a book coming out next year with Bloomsbury on the science fiction futures and modernism from Virginia Woolf to feminist speculative fiction in the 21st century, which we might possibly have time to talk about at the end of the show. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> yes, if we, yeah. <laughs> if we get there. But uh, the proletarian to the answer to the modernist question, though, was first published by, um, in 2017 by Edinburgh University Press, but has just become available in a more affordable paperback version for 11.99. I think you can get it um, in an ebook form as well. Uh, it's a book which casts light in some uh, very well-known authors of canonical modernism, Virginia Woolf, D. H. Lawrence, Ford, Maddox Ford, and on organisations like Mass Observation, and also discusses works like John Somerfield's May Day, uh, Lewis Grassic Gibson's Scott Square trilogy, and the works of Naomi Mitchison. It's a book which, to quote it back at its author, is interested in aesthetic practice that remained open both to others and to social change. Uh, so Nick, to get us started off, um, uh, the book is very much alive with the kind of the, the discourse and the concerns of the 21st century. At one point, one point I particularly enjoyed you compare Nietzsche and Strind Strindberg to uh, men's rights activists. <laughs> uh, uh, but I suppose the first question is why should we go back to the 1930s to discuss these questions? Um, well, I think there's, there's, there's several answers to that. I mean, one obviously is just that it's, it's a research interest of mine and one of the things I've found myself increasingly thinking is actually those debates that we're having today are similar or recasted versions of debates that were going on in the 1930s. Um, and also I think um, particularly, um, well, one of, the, one of the problems with the 1930s is it tends to be seen, um, as, as you were saying, as I suppose concerned primarily with cis, white, you know, male, authors, the industrial uh, proletariat. But actually, mm. when you read um, these books, that's not the case. And if you actually look at the history, that's not the case. It was the decade in which um, women factory workers, you know, more working class women were work, write, working in factories than were working in domestic service, which mm. had been the, the big thing to that point. And, you know, for example, at the time, if you wanted somewhere clean with a nice environment with the radio while you're working in a modern production progress, I think, process i think cigarette factories for example were, were a good thing but women also went on on strike they were in some ways more militant than their male um co-workers they were also interested in things like paid holidays mm. so the the paid holidays act which i think is 1938 was as a result primarily i think of in the first place sort of women workers kind of going on on on, on strike and, and supporting that and being in favor of that and certain unions particularly the transport and general workers union choosing to support them and do that so there's a kind of history that's not obvious we think of these sort of flat cap sort of men mm. being militant but it's kind of broader than that and the last thing i'd say about that is also the welfare state the foundation of the welfare state in 1945 has kind of stopped us in some ways stopped us looking at the 30s as, as we should we 
we sometimes view the 30s as though they they the decade of you know the depression unemployment the means test mm. you know the jarrow hunger march and up many other hum, hunger marches of that decade and you know it's seen as a, a, a decade of ills that were put right by the welfare settlement but in mm. some ways the welfare settlement although it it solved a number of those kind of problems it also clo closed off if you like the more exciting possibilities of social liberation that were being discussed in mm. the 30s so only by going back you know before the welfare state can we get at some of these more interesting i think you know kind of politics of gender and and sexuality and uh, intersectional kind of politics that actually kind of 30s writers and mm. the 30s leftist movement were, were exploring at the time i think yeah the uh going back sort of either side of the welfare settlement thing is it something you, you draw out quite interestingly in the the conclusion but i should probably leave that at the end because it's the end of the book but yeah. um but uh for the moment um maybe a, a good place to sort of uh to, to talk about sort of early on is um the story you tell in the book about the or this the the origins of proletarian literature as, as a category uh and I, which i think is a, a sort of an encounter that between some of the authors I mentioned then, sort of uh, Ford Manix Ford and D.H. Lawrence. Uh. Yes, I mean, that was, that's uh, kind of George Orwell's argument. George Orwell wrote a, a piece called The Proletarian Writer, I think, which was a radio piece that went out in early 1940. Um, and he said, you know, we can date proletarian literature back to the meeting of Ford Maddox Ford and D.H. Lawrence and Ford Maddox Ford publishing things like D.H. Lawrence's Ode of Chrysanthemums in the English Review, which is like about 1908 or something like mm. that, which is a story of a death of a working class kind of minor and 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 and, and uh, viewed from from partly from the perspective of his of, of his wife. So it has that kind of domestic intersectional element in it, and it's just that that meeting in itself set up because one of the ways I construct proletarian literature is not, for example, so I think as it's defined on Wikipedia as just only the literature of the authentic working class, but as as a literature that, it, you know, it explores the kind of intersubjective relationships between the working class and others. So it could be mm. written by somebody who's coming from a working class background like Lawrence, but it mm. could also be written, uh, you know, as perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll come on to discussing, but somebody who's not coming from that background, but as somebody who's 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 uh, like Naomi Mitchison, for example, who becomes related into the working class movement and is, is kind of thinking these things through from the other side of the class divide. So it's that sense, and I think that was the popular sense of proletarian literature in in the certainly by the second half of the 1930s, mm. been shaped by novels like Love on the Dole about unemployment. But it was you know the working class was suddenly there people large numbers of working class writers were, were writing books and other writers were writing also writing about interacting with the working class it's almost mm. as though the the victorian class uh, system collapses in the 30s and everybody suddenly mixes into into each other and discovers mm. there's all these moments of almost epiphanic moments of, of discovery that the mm. other is also has a subjectivity and it's not just uh, mm. you know an opposed force in society mm. One of the sort of uh, the kind of the landmarks uh, really in the period and one that you discuss really interestingly uh, through the way it sort of impacts on the on literature uh, of the period is um, the 1926 general strike. It's kind of a not quite a halfway point in the 30s, but <laughs> um, but the I wondered if um, and you talk I really enjoyed the way you talk about the way that that um, you sort of track it through. Well, various ways, but one of the ways is through the drafts of uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover. Um, mm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the general strike, 1926, I mean, we should say there's now a kind of concept of the long 1930s. So in mm. some ways, the 30s are beginning from the, from, from the general strike and going through, you know, by some accounts, to sort of the end of the Second World War. And, you know, you, you can play around with that that concept quite a bit. But... The general strike is significant, obviously, because it was nine days. There was a general strike, and then it um, it broke down. But uh, the miners carried on on strike afterwards, um, and in some ways, it's you can see it as an older point because it's, it's it's the defeat actually of an older kind of male working class kind of movement. The, the miners were, you know, obviously it was a, it was a male occupation. It was a, they were a very masculine 
uh, kind of movement and they were the last major union to accept the case for uh, votes for women for example so uh, mm. in some way they, they they were the kind of holdouts and and the actual defeat of that of that strike certainly the continuation of the miners uh, strike afterwards the, a number of women got involved in the kind of support networks for that, very much as indeed has happened in the, in the kind of 84, 85 mm. minor strike. And that actually opened the way for a more intersectional politics um, to come in. And I'll, I'll come to Lawrence directly after this, but one, one other mm. novel that kind of covers that directly is Ellen Wilkinson's Clash, mm. which is actually moves between London and, and the centre of the centre of the, the, the organisation of the general strike and then up to the kind of northwest, um, northeast, sorry, uh, mining, you know, the Durham kind of uh, mining areas and and kind of gets down to the nitty gritty of kind of women organising committees mm. and how that works. So the, the, there is a there is a lot of literature to look at. With Lawrence, it's kind of interesting because he went back to Eastwood, uh, where he came from, in September 1926, which was after the actual general strike had finished, but while the miners were still on on strike. And for some, you know that. Traditionally, that was seen as Lawrence went back to his kind of mining roots, became interested again in, in kind of class in a way that he mm. hadn't for a while. And so the first draft of Lady Chatterley's Love, in which the um, the gamekeeper's called Parkin, um, and he actually joins, towards the end of the book, he joins the Communist Party and goes off and works in a steel foundry <laughs> in Sheffield. I mean, traditionally, that was seen as the more the most class conscious of the novels. And then as the successive drafts got written, it was seen as though Lawrence was moving away from that class politics. But actually, um, if you read his account of going back to Eastwood, which is called Return to Bestwood, Eastwood becomes Bestwood in, in, in that account, he was actually very worried at the, at the time that there would be a kind of class war. Mm. So in that first draft, actually, you can read it as though he's actually trying to discuss, you know, the problem of that, of that class war. So, for example, Parkin becomes almost like a class-conscious warrior, and uh, Connie, um, Lady Chatterley, um, you know, becomes separated from him in that because she can't stand the hate. So in some ways, these two main characters have kind of got separate kind of viewpoints on what's happening. But then as you follow through the drafts, they actually come together. There's a kind of, there's a kind of mixture of gender and sexual kind of politics that, that sees them coming, coming together. So they, they become... And that's actually because of the timing, because by the time uh, Lawrence had finished the first draft of Lady Chatterley's Lover, um, the actual the extended strike by the miners had come to an end. Um, so this was towards the end of, right at the end of 1926. You know, there wasn't going to be the threat to this class war, so he doesn't have to write about that. He can write, he can actually have uh, Connie and, and, and uh, Melos interested, Parkin interested in, a kind of shared classless kind of future and it's that 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 kind of runs through through the thread and actually the easiest scene to describe that is where um um parkin mellows the gamekeeper has to push uh clifford lord chatterley mm. up the hill in his in his kind of um uh his broken down wheelchair um the first draft of that novel he has to push him up on his own in the second um part of the uh, second draft of the novel Connie and 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 uh Melos do it together mm. but it's kind of like this the, it's actually the first time she thinks when she does it oh I'm going to sleep with you tonight so there's mm. a kind of sexual uh connection as well and in the, in, in the third version it's kind of completely they're on the same side and it's Clifford who's seen as a kind of class opponent and they push him up all the way together and they kind of sort of touch hands and you know they come come together in a much more utopian possibility of a kind of classless mm. classless future so you know we read that novel differently now than it was read in 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 well certainly in the 60s when it when it came out after the famous trial yeah the um i suppose you kind of you touched on it uh just earlier on when we were talking about the 1930s you then sort of in the book, move on to, to talk a bit about how um sort of after 26 a lot more of the there's a sense that a lot more of um, sort of labour political movements are being led by women, uh, but also there's a kind of in the the kind of literary kind of uh, period, periodization of the, well discussion of the period. Um, people like Ken Walpole talk about how a lot of the conversely uh, a lot of the fiction of the the era is can seem quite uh, kind of aggressively masculine. You have this uh, sort of 
um, yeah. That, yeah. Um, well, I think Ken Morpol's partly talking more about the the, the, the post-war fiction of the kind of 50s oscillato oh, yeah. and um, up to people writing in the 70s, like William McIlvenny's um, Doherty. And they're very, they are very, uh, uh, there's, there's a masculine tradition, which, which according to Walpole is kind of partly driven by that kind of hard-boiled um, American writing, which became mm. kind, became influential in the period. And I think that's, that's in some ways that's another reason for going back to the 30s because actually if you look at it it's not so masculine um as that post-war writing actually there are more i mean the point about some of these books is there are women workers in in, in summerfield's may day for example you know there's there's, there's a there's, which is set of three days in london around mm. a factory and there's a strike in the factory and the strike is initially led by the women workers so for example it's not the um you know the 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 masculine approach of, of, of you know which we came to I suppose associate with mm. with, with that kind of working class writing um, but I suppose sorry the, uh, I'm, I'm, I've lost my thread but say I'll let <laughs> you well, maybe yeah. that'd be a, a, good, a good point to go back into asking more about Naomi Mitchison uh, mm. who's, who's perhaps one of the uh, I mean certainly not as uh, certainly not as well known as Wolf or um, mm. or Lawrence, or can, could you say a bit about about her work? Uh, uh, well, Mitchison is is was is an endlessly fascinating writer. He wrote about seventy books from the nineteen twenties up until the the nineteen nineties. Still, she was still writing, um, and you can see there's a movement in her from being a kind of a, a, a I suppose initially a kind of liberal, a socially sympathetic liberal, to becoming uh, a more committed. Um, socialist during the 1930s i mean her her brother was uh, jbs haldane who was a, a kind of a leading public intellectual of the, the communist party so mm. she was moving in those circles and she knew every other writer you know across the the kind of class spectrum from virginia wolf to kind of working class mm. writers in 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 the 1930s and in in the book i particularly discuss her we have been warned um which is a kind of slightly near future set um account of uh which ends up with with a, with kind of um a fascist uprising in 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 england and, and the mm. main character is called dione so it's a kind of very very um thinly veiled um version of mitchison herself escaping back to to scotland and there's a kind of moment in that where she, where she she picks up an unemployed worker. She's driving her car in Scotland. She picks up an un, unemployed worker, and they have a kind of discussion um, about their different political views, which are kind of actually. And, and 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 she says to him, even though she's driving a car, obviously he's unemployed and hungry, and she's got a car. She's coming from a, a more uh, quite an upper class back background in some ways she says to him but i'm a red too and it's a kind of like epiphanic moment of connection across the across the classes which is put together with with mitchison's hope that kind of sexual and, and gendered and class relations will be transformed in the future kind of hundred years hence or so uh, you mm. know we look back and you know we won't be bothered about the same morality and and so on and so forth i mean there's a there's a, there's a trip in the novel to the soviet union where she meets Soviet workers, and um, she wants to be a Soviet w woman worker. There's Soviet w uh, women workers that she meets who, who basically are not. There's one woman who's not married and has children by different partners, but yet is an independent woman. And mm. and, and and the kind of character thinks this would be a wonderful kind of kind of future. So it feeds into a lot of even what will become kind of feminist science fiction futures mm. years years ahead it, it 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 crosses a lot of a lot of um a lot of areas this text and i think it, you know therefore it, it's a book I actually featured very early in, in 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 my book because i want to show what what the kind of possibilities of the politics of that decade the literary politics of that decade were which have you know which have been lost in the the kind of stereotypical version of the of the 30s that mm. that, that, that held until relatively recently so Mm. Well, I suppose another thing, just when you're talking about um, Mitchison and, and and Russia, and um, one of the the sort of concepts which come in comes in as a sort of a model of uh, what this sort of writing might be, 
I sort of work with or against is kind of pro that cult and uh, the kind of mm. ideas of. Um, do you want to say a bit, a bit about that? Or? Um, well, they were, well, I'm not sure the prolet cult was that well understood in in Britain anyway. Yeah. So, um, but it, there was an idea that the that proletarian literature was a very much a a written by workers. I suppose that's the origin of the idea that proletarian literature should be written by the workers. Should be very um, about um, workers taking. Um, you know the workers, the kind of hero. In some ways, the the prolet cult is is much more like the idea we have of the kind of propaganda version of mm. kind of Soviet um, writing. Although the the and what happens in I mean, it's a significant point in the nineteen thirties, the nineteen thirty four Soviet Writers Cong Congress, the 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 kind of Soviet Writers um, Associ Association and other international writers at that Congress move away from. Um, sort of narrow version of prolet cult to just to, to what they're looking forward to is a kind of socialist realism which will be include more which bourgeois writers could write as as well more like the 19th century novel but from from yeah. the point of view of the factory worker an interaction between classes that would lead to the um uh you know lead to kind of i suppose what would become socialist realism later after the second world war and in some ways in Britain, it doesn't quite work out like that because I think what you get is um, because, for example, that 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 idea of socialist realism also discarded uh, modernism. I mean, famously, Karl Radek described Joyce's Ulysses as a kind of a dunghill crawling with worms. Mm. Or, uh, it, it's a very um, almost like a kind of Nazi put down of, mm. of, of uh, avant-garde culture. But Britain didn't kind of work out quite that way partly because it's more distant and also because just because uh, you know it takes things you know surrealism only got to britain in the mid 30s mm. so you know it takes it takes a, the cultural transmission takes a while so you had writers who were still um like uh mitchison like john summerfield uh like lewis grassic gibbon as well who are using still using kind of stream of consciousness mm. and various other techniques to show in into subjective relations between classes so they're not doing prolet cult but they're not doing socialist realism either. You know, mm. they're doing something that is more like, well, I've called it proletarian modernism um, in some ways. But that's that's also a, that's just a, a kind of a general idea of what they're doing. I, I, mm. I wouldn't like to imprison it within mm. that category. I think it's a more open-ended kind of kind of category of um, of kind of exchange and looking mm. and looking to the future. Yes, which yeah. Which well, we're rediscovering. Yeah, exactly. Ways, yeah. It's one of the. the yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly still not been defined, which is why uh, why it's, it's interesting having this conversation yeah. now, and why looking back to that period is is so so productive. I think um, the uh, maybe uh, sort of hopping around a, a little bit, but um, in terms of sort of defining uh, kind of some of the the, the concepts, sort of like you, you you think think through one of them. Uh, is William Empson's idea of, of the pastoral, which you kind of relate to, well, he relates to proletarian literature, and uh, I wonder if you could uh, sort of explain that a bit. Um, yes, I mean that's uh, Empson is a, is a, is a, on on the you know wonderfully complex kind of thinker, but who writes books that are that are, that are readable. Um, um, and in the 30s, he'd, he'd already written one book called Seven Types of Ambiguity about poetry, but a way of thinking about ambiguity, kind of like a way of thinking about complex things altogether. Then in 1935, he wrote some versions of Pastoral, the first chapter of which is called Proletarian Literature. Um, and it comes down to the... He's arguing against prolet cult idea of proletarian literature, that um, he says, you know, you can't have um, a writer who's at one with the worker because the writer can't be at one with any section mm. of society. In some ways, the writer has to be detached to some extent to actually to, to actually write about things. So he, he he's arguing against that. But he says, but what you could do if you wanted, if, if you were a state like the Soviet Union and you actually wanted to have a form of proletarian literature, you'd have to make it like a kind of pastoral. So he almost writes it like a kind of falter... A thought experiment. I mean, some critics have seen it as his having a joke or his actually mm. rejecting the idea, but I don't think that 
make sense within the context of the time of why you would actually start your your volume with the section on proletarian mm. literature. He's actually updating it and saying proletarian literature is is you know the latest instance of a literature that thinks about kind of class relations and wants to change change the world and the basic pastoral idea is it's putting the complex into a simple form um unfortunately the, the explanation of it is not that simple <laughs> but that's the idea is it's kind of simple in in the sense that it's playing off of these similar ideas of ambiguity he's got so you're talking about you're trying to write about the relationship with the other so in in one sense he puts it in you're you're trying to say in one sense the other is more simple than me if you're for example a bourgeois writing about a, a sh well a shepherd in the original idea that mm. the, of, of of the pastoral but an industrial work worker and i've got a more complex consciousness but in another way i realize that you've got a more complex consciousness and i've got a more mm. simple consciousness so there's a kind of a dialectical interplay between the two mm. kind of going on so you're not trying to imagine yourself as the worker you're trying to imagine yourself having a full intersubjective exchange with the worker if you are a, you know, a bourgeois writer or if you're actually a worker you're trying to you know do it the other way around um and it's that kind of idea that this is actually um deploying the same kind of techniques that we use you know kind of free versions of, of part i mean mm. empson's idea of the tradition of pastoral is, is you know goes from john gay's the beggar's opera to alice in wonderland it's not mm. it's not you know just books about shepherds you know to put it in in so it's a very you know sophisticated kind of account of, of, of literary history but it provides this this sort of mechanism of thinking how people can can interact and you know it shows those interactions where you actually get these kind of complex interplays of imagination and interaction in these no novels like Mitchison's where she's thinking what it would be like to be, you know, this working class woman in, in, mm. in Soviet Russia. So, you know, it's not, there's a, there's a complex kind of interaction going on there between the workers and, 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 and um, John Summerfield does this in May Day as well. You know, he has, um, people are constantly slipping it's it's like uh virginia Woolf's mrs dalloway people are con constantly slipping into others kind of some in you know subjective kind of thinking but it's done in a in a, in a consciously political mm. cross-class way and in some ways may day is just a politicized version of of, of mrs dalloway so yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, I like that as a, <laughs> as a as a comparison on the, the kind of on the empson thing i think um an interesting I mean, aspects of it is kind of I mean, there is, as you said, it's such a kind of uh, a kind of a subtle and kind of complex idea, but uh, and which is sort of like does have a sort of slight element of comedy in it. The kind of that you have, uh, you know, the kind of caricature kind of bourgeois writer, kind of uh, you know, almost suddenly in the costume of a pastoral poet, kind of looking yes. at this kind of proletarian <laughs> sort of like uh, worker and sort of. Um, you know, I think the the line is something like, uh, "In some ways, I am more complex than you, but others less." And to yes, like, uh, yes. But the it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the some of the discussion of Orwell and the way that Orwell relates to his uh, to his subjects uh, in something. And I'm forgetting for the moment who, whose line it is about. Uh, is it was it Williams about? Um, they're always being at the fug of the musical about. Uh, I think it's Hoggart. Actually. Oh, Hoggart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Richard Hoggart writing about Orwell. Yes, I mean I think. Well, it, I mean, part of my larger argument in the book is that this kind of pastoral interplay is actually there before in in going from the Edwardian period and the and the nineteen twenties in people like Ford, Maddox, Ford, and H. G. Wells. Um, there's a kind of musical modernism that they're. Um, it's not the engaged political interaction of somebody like Summerfield or Mitchison, but they're there in, it's like they're there in in a box at the musical where apparently Ford Maddox Ward used to edit the, the English Review while sitting in his mm. box in, 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 in the kind of musical. And, and you know, Elliot, in, it's a very Elliot kind of image as well. Yes, in interacting with, with, the, with, the, uh, with, the, with the acts, yes. So that, that kind of idea, which I think is is there, and well, it's, 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 it's part of modernism anyway. Yes, as you said, it's, you know, it's, it's in the um the wasteland is is kind of implicit that kind of interaction as well but it's making this kind of um making this actually actually kind of um political and um showing um 
Yeah, with Orwell, he 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 kind of is not. I mean, the only place where he really does get um, to, and I, I should specify, I mean, Orwell's a person who, who divides opinion. Mm. And I mean, I'm genuinely pro Orwell, but pro Orwell in the way that I mean, I read somebody like Raymond Williams as being pro mm. Orwell. And in, in quite a lot of Orwell reception, Williams is seen as the kind of communist rejection of Orwell. Mm. I think that's a misreading of. of, of of, of, of Williams. Williams is the kind of critical friend, at times a very critical friend, but it's still a critical kind mm. of friend. And I think that's a tradition I, w I would follow. I mean, Orwell, in Homage to Catalonia, there is the point where he comes kind of closest to that interaction. And, and there is certainly the way he writes about revolutionary Barcelona is understood as a form of kind of pastoral. And you have to remember, Orwell had, had certainly read Empson and was a friend of Empson. Mm. I mean, not necessarily in 1935, but later mm. he was anyway. So it affects what he's, what he's doing. But I think also Orwell kind of slides back into the more musical version. So something like The Road to Wigan Pier, it, it's a wonderful read, but the kind of version it gives of the working class is a bit more like that Ford Maddox Ford kind of version of especially when he talks about the working class interior and, you know, dad sitting in the armchair reading the racing finals and, you know, <laughs> mum's knitting and the dog is, and the child are playing with them. They've got like a, you know, halfpenny worth of humbugs. <laughs> and <laughs> the line that always sticks in my head is that the dog is, dog is roasting itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in some ways, it's obviously a kind of parody. And all, all obviously knows it's a kind of parody, but it's also a kind of pastoral um, kind of thing. But mm. it's... He doesn't quite interact. It's it's like appealing to a middle class audience, saying this is the working class, you know, yeah. uh, people you want to you, you how how they should be imagined, respected, but in their place, kind of. Whereas in the thirties, they're actually you know you know you're you're, you're sleeping with these people and interacting yeah. and having kind of you know a different set of relations with them than than he's he's providing. So in in that sort of reading that again i sort of couldn't help but think of because uh, he's back on the telly but kind of like alan partridge stood in front of like you know this this is a sort of dramatic scenario which has been set up and then suddenly like partridge steps on sort of steps on screen and is describing the kind of like the dog roasting itself and mum knitting and like actually that is that is uh, that, that's a great thought actually that's a brilliant <laughs> because in some ways Orwell is like that because Orwell is is an act i mean he's not yeah. he's not Orwell. he's still eric blair and i think you read it I would read it as there is a kind of act which is like Partridge. It's, it's amazingly, it allows you to do all sorts of wonderful things, but yeah. still somewhere there's an air of, it can't quite escape from its own sort of parody yeah. somehow, yeah. Well, that's, it's a really, it's a, a moment in the book I really like where you talk about, um, you compare um, Eric Blair to all, you know, kind of like it, what relation, we think about, say, the relationship that uh, that Joyce has to Stephen Bloom uh, and the relationship to, that it's actually a lot easier to forget the relationship that George Orwell has to Eric Blair as a sort of, a, as a fictionalised character who is the author of the books. Yes, I mean, that's, that's part of the discussion of autobiographiction, which is um, an Edwardian term um, that's kind of been revived by Max Saunders' book on self-impression, um, which he wanted to call a book on autobiographiction, but I think uh, Oxford University Press wouldn't let him use that that title. But it's it's, it's this idea of, of of kind of fictionally writing yourself almost as as you can provide a fuller autobiography. Is one of the points you can discuss the shame of the character. You can discuss obviously just all sorts of sexual liaisons and so on that you couldn't do if you if you were writing a, you know an actual autobiography in the 1920s mm. uh, or 30s or or in these in these days but it's also kind of fuller because you can sh you can almost write yourself as as, as as a kind of fictional character but also you can ex discover things about yourself through the act of of of, of writing so it's not just Joyce and all but also Wolf I mean Wolf's Orlando is, is mm. a kind of you know what obviously a kind of self voyager self-discovery in some ways about gender and sexuality so it, mm. it's a kind of very powerful mode of writing um the, the connection between between orwell and joyce and that is 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 as uh, again well this is partly drawing on, on max saunders idea that you know there's seven seven levels almost of autobiographiction a bit like 
um, William Empson's Seven Types of Ambiguity. And um, Joyce kind of gets to the seventh level in kind of Ulysses and Portrait with, with the kind of complex relationship between between himself and Stephen Dedalus that kind of that kind of um, interacts. But Orwell does something similar, but we, we don't see it because it's, the books are written by Orwell. Mm. So um, we don't get the sense of, um, well, obviously the books are written by Orwell, but if, if it's called, you can read Ulysses as though, uh, or Portrait of the Art, and the Portrait of the Artist, as though they're being written by Stephen Dedalus and they're actually mm. writing autobiographies of themselves. It gets kind of very kind of, complicated with with the joy sitting kind of further back as well as i made a new one and call him stephen bloom <laughs> yeah well yes exactly i mean that that, that i mean that it, i mean in some ways one of my arguments would be that that ulysses is proletarian literature because of that in, interaction yeah. between Daedalus and, and kind of and kind of bloom i suppose that's a that's a wider uh, that's a wider kind of argument but um but with all well the distance kind of collapses because mm. the cat, you know, the fictional character, it is the fictional character all well writing the books, but he presents himself as that fictional character. He doesn't, you know, there's not, we don't think of, you know, in some ways, uh, Penguin would have to republish all these books as by Eric Blair. Mm. And then, you know, but obviously that's not going to happen, but then we, then we could do something more like that, that kind of analysis. It always, you know, in some ways he made a persona for himself and he had to live within the kind of constraints of that, of that he's like in that sense always like one of those stage magicians like the you know there's a famous chinese stage uh musician who had this act where he he pulled a goldfish bowl a uh, bowl out from between this you know hidden somewhere um he just produces it from midair but actually it's held between his between his knees throughout the entire act but in order to maintain this act he had to sort of do this all the time, walk around, you know, with a goldfish bowl between his, his immensely strong person, but he had to sort of shuffle around like an elderly person. With him. And that's exactly what Orwell is. It's this great act, but he's completely constrained. He has to be Orwell all the time. And so uh, so in that sense, somebody like Joyce, you know, is, is you'd have to say is, 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 is smarter on that, on, that, on that level, yeah. Um, you're listening to Sweet 2 on 2 on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm Tom Overton. I'm talking to Nick Hubble. Uh, on that, um, <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on Orwell, but um, just as you were saying that, I'm reminded also of uh, the, and I'm getting sort of the sources of, of things mixed up today, but is it, I, I think it's Jack Common's story about, uh, you know, despite whatever you know, kind of name he t- called, him t- called himself, you know, kind of Orwell or Eric Blair, like when he went to bars, sort of like while he was slumming it, um, barman still called him Sir. Yes, no, that is that is the Jack Common um, kind of story about it. Jack Common being a Northeast working class writer. Um, and in some ways, Orwell, I suppose he doesn't, in that sense, he doesn't have that that easy. He never gets over his own class thing. I mean, he does have. I mean, he was obviously was a friend with with Common. In mm. some senses, Jack Common was his, his his closest working class kind of kind of friend. And also, he had the the moment when he he was um, fighting in the Sp- uh, Spanish Civil War with the POUM, and you know, kind of close relationship with kind of working class guys who were kind of fighting with him at the time. Although it has to be said, he was also the the officer was originally a sergeant and then became the lieutenant of the mm. of, of, of the kind of unit. So you know you could you could argue about whether he gets over that over that kind of um, kind of collapse. Unlike some of these, like say John Summerfield, who is also a middle class, per- he went to school with Stephen Spender in a uh, um, day school, but even so, uh, in 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 London, not a still a, a, a school for you know upper middle class kind of people largely but um but he worked in um you know he he had working class jobs he worked on on sh- in ships in freighters you know doing washing up and doing other things on on and such and worked as a carpenter and worked in kind of factories and worked in uh, quite a lot in stage making stage scenery and he was a guy who could go in the in in, in pubs and and well obviously spent a year year and over a year in in, in bolton in pubs R- reporting on the pub and the people for mass observation, so made himself quite ill. <laughs> yeah, no, he did. Yeah, uh, uh, um, by obviously the need to um, drink huge quantities of beer every night, uh, reporting on on, on on multiple pubs. So there's a kind of um, or again, I think that's indicative. He never quite gets across those barriers. Whereas other, um, I mean, it's sometimes talked about 
just going over to the other side, partly because of the way that people in the kind of Auden group, particularly Edward Upward, discusses it, or Auden discusses it in, in kind of poetry. This it becomes a kind of almost a fetishistic kind of mm. kind of thing. But in practice, I think when people weren't talking about it that way and just doing it, you know, there was there mm. was this kind of cross class. A lot of it has to be said was through the kind of communist party that kind of oiled the the kind of connections um, between people. That's certainly the case with with John Summerfield mm. was in the, in the communist party. Even as partly the origin of mass observation, because Charles mm. imagined mass observation was a communist. He met hunger strikers that way, and that was his kind of mode of interacting with with kind of working class people. That then becomes in some way funnels into mass observation as this, mm. you know. Um, connecting with with the, with the kind of workers so yeah you know that whole topic is still endlessly fascinating actually you know yeah yeah I mean, especially with sort of mass observations of one of the i mean my understanding of it is, is very imperfect but kind of one of its sort of motivations being as almost like as a tool of government they're going kind to of like how to how better to kind of uh, run society like uh, by understanding kind of like what people were like and what they did and what they liked yeah, so well, that's kind of part of the way in which part of that 30s idea does feed in, in, into the kind of welfare state because mass observation were concerned that, you know, the gap between the leaders and the led and if you have to really understand uh, the needs of people to actually meet them and, and also as a kind of communication, it was also a kind of anti-fascist idea. You know, if you don't actually have a... Have, have a have a better connection you end up just with the kind of connection of kind of populism and mm. and uh you're going to the kind of populist politics of the strong leader as kind of exemplified by by nazi germany so they uh mass observation was about kind of um you know finding out exactly how the workers uh live was kind of part of it in bolton uh and the actual people I mean, not all mass observation workers were upper middle class. I mean, they employed a number of local people and they had other working class people. It was a much more cross-class organisation than it was originally, you know, again, the the early reception of that has been a bit misleading. But in, the people who were actually in Bolton really did interact with, you know, the working class people of that area. I mean, partly, again, because they were in the same street as the communist headquarters in, in Bolton. So their immediate, one of their immediate connections with the kind of working class people was through kind of communists. Mm kind of kind of politics but they do really they you know they do really interact and you know had you know there were a number of cross-class relationships i mean the most obvious one is is bill norton who, who became a, a very big post-war writer wrote um best known perhaps for alfie uh the, the michael kane film but i mean he was the coal delivery person for the mass observation house in hmm. um in in bolton that's how he met uh you know, middle-class people. So he met the, the mass observers. And then after the, his first collection of stories was published by Charles Madge uh, at the end of the Second World War. So there's a kind of connection mm. there, you know, how... how So there's a, there's real connections kind of going on. Um, but again, yeah, part of mass observation becomes planning, post-war planning. Mm. So Madge, you know, went on to become the social development officer of Stevenage Newtown. So that's mm. a real planners thing and then went off to become a professor of sociology at, at, at Birmingham so it kind, of, it kind of feeds into post-war sociology and the, mm. the post-war welfare state whereas it could it could feed off into a slightly different more avant-garde you know fluid uh kind of new kind of classless society a bit yeah as it was when they were actually living in, in Bolton it's a bit like living in a in a commune in some ways <laughs> but that's that's not the bit that you know, becomes history, as it were. It's the, it's the, mm. it's, 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 as you say, it's the more kind of surveillance government back thing that that, that that becomes history and sort of drives the welfare state. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that um, that sort of moment of the interaction of uh, the sort of the flow of mass observation into into the welfare state is uh, something I want to pop back to just in, in finishing in, in, in a couple of minutes. But f before we get completely sort of bound up in the, sort of the afterlives sort of section, I wanted to ask. Also about another one of the, the stories which I, I didn't know very well uh, that you, you sort of go through, and uh, this is uh, because one of the because we were just talking about Ulysses there and uh, the Virginia Woolf's opinions of Ulysses and uh, sort of the 
some aspects of Virginia Woolf's uh, reputation, but uh, you tell um, quite a nice story about uh, Woolf and Agnes Smith, um, which is a sort of a di- dimension of her class politics that um, at least I didn't know as well. Yes, that's um, uh, Agnes Smith was uh, one of the women who wrote, who, and she was uh, an industrial worker. I think she was a, a weaver or worked in a cotton mill or something like that. I can't actually uh, remember exactly, but she was an industrial worker who, who corresponded with Wolf after Free Guineas. Um, and there's a kind of, there's a kind of. I mean, I argue that that Wolf herself was also writing a kind of proletarian literature. There's. Um, the introductory letter she writes to the um, Life as We Have Known It, the collection of women's cooperative guild workers' uh, letters published in about 1930. And there's a bit in that where she kind of imagines herself almost as a working-class wife, you know, having to get the bath ready. And she doesn't do it. She kind of says, I could do this, but it would be kind of dishonest. But in Mm. kind of doing that, she's still playing with the idea. So it's kind of almost like like an Emsonian kind of way of... Of, of doing that, thinking of this, you know, on the one hand, I'm more complex, on the other hand, I'm more simple mm. kind of kind of relationship. And I think that runs through her 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 work in surprising way. I mean, it runs through in 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 the in the years that huge uh, novel that she wrote, you know, in in in, in well mid thirties towards the end of thirties, and part of a, an impossibly big project that got slimmed down to still a very a very large novel where there's kind of interaction. With different um, classes and the idea that we, you know, it, it, it almost reads like a. In places that reads a bit like the kind of mass obs- mass observationy, the idea that you have to understand, uh, you know, others' lives. And then that was part originally going to be part of the. Uh, that was going to originally with Free Guineas as one book, the Pargeters, kind of essays and fictional inserts. I mean, the project was was too big, so they ended up getting published separately separately and free guineas is where she gets a number of letters from women and one of them yes is agnes agnes smith who is this industrial worker and it led to a you know a lengthy uh, correspondence between the two of them and you got uh, agnes smith corresponding about you know what it's like when the you know the machinery of the factory gets into your kind of consciousness and controls mm. what your your kind of kind of um thinking and there's this huge kind of correspondence with wolf with her which is not the kind of you know, um, stereotypical view of Wolf we have as this kind of slightly snobbish, upper-class Bloomsbury character. You know, uh, who 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 um, you know kind of displays um, her her kind of sort of re- re- reactions to though she's kind of liberal, but kind of some sort of displays her you know her her reactions. You know, so I mean, I think it's partly because we've got everything by Wolf. We've got all the diaries and yeah. everything, so you can find these find these examples but I mean people are only you know human is what I would say but you know again this this kind of long interaction with with, with Agnes Smith is, a, is a, again indicative of that kind of cross class kind of cultural thing that's happening which is not just a it gets buried I think after the war because after the war culture again becomes seen as a kind of process of dissemination so it's um you know what will become radio Four kind of you know reefian view of the kind of bbc disseminating culture to the masses and you can read wolf like that because a number of her books got published as penguin paperbacks around about the war and she she becomes a kind of cultural shaper that way but if you go back to actually wolf writing letters to this you know agnes smith you can see there's that there's actually a much more even-handed cross-class mm. possibility and that i suppose that's the the history that should have you know that might in a utopian world have happened after the second world war mm. but didn't happen that kind of gets gets buried within what it, what actually becomes a sort of a much more top-down version mm. of the welfare state i should say i kind of uh just alluded to uh virginia Woolf's opinions of, of ulysses was actually saying what they were i think there's, there's, a, there's a line uh one of the words in her description of it is underbred so this is sometimes uh highlighted as a sort of uh the the opinion that she was a of a snobbishness, which is a that, yeah. you, were, that you were arguing very uh, yeah. very cogently against. Yes, I mean, I don't think I don't think Wolf could have ever written <laughs> something <laughs> like Ulysses, but that's but you know she she could it, 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 she could inter, certainly interact, yeah. you know, with and and she had a long history. She also worked for the WA, the Workers mm. Education Association. You know, she it, 
you know, there's there's another side of Wolf that that doesn't come across in that kind of stereotypical viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you were just uh, then kind of setting us up quite nicely for thinking kind of about the the, the afterlife and sort of um, and this is something we kind of touched on at the beginning, really. But uh, you know, why why the 1930s and how they're framed partly by uh, the emergence of the welfare state after the, after after the war and uh, also kind of the the way that we think about this period uh, being framed as well by its sort of uh absorption into the the canon uh kind of during the cold war yes uh and i suppose <laughs> that's skipping over a lot of history from uh from all the way over the cold war and its end to uh 2017 when you publish your book <laughs> but um yeah could you talk a bit about how how it's the politics of how it goes into the canon the 30s go into the, can the literary canon in the, in the cold war and like how um yeah how i mean that's it. that's there, there is quite a, a quite a complex history to that i mean on the one hand what happens after the second world war is fiction becomes more realist um and that kind of mitigates both against kind of modernism at least as, as kind of practice for, for for writers um and against proletarian literature which as i said in some ways gets superseded you know well we don't want to hear about those conditions now you know we've mm. we've solved them um and certainly by the 50s you know there was uh you couldn't um there, there's a doris, doris lessing piece where she talks about it you know you can't get up as, as, as a writer today in 1957 and talk about commitment political commitment because half your audience will immediately walk out of the out of the room because it it, it, it and that's it is partly obviously a cold war context but it's also partly just the kind of the 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 disparagement of that political engagement of the 30s was all somehow seen i think in re in, in retrospect as complicit in the kind of totalitarian war of the kind of mm. kind of kind of 40s so there's a there's a kind of reluctance to get involved in that level of of, of political commitment and I suppose it's a generational thing as well for writers like Spender or who were you know, kind of Orton or kind of a generation which was involved in that and then is sort of older and yes. has a different outlook after. And of course, a number of those writers then sort of repudiated their, their kind of past. I mean, famously Spender in The, the God That Failed, that, yeah. the, the collection about the sort of communism and, and, and others of that period. And and one of the things they 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 said in retrospect was, you know, I think John Lehman actually apologised for publishing all these working class writers actually in uh, things like New Writing and Penguin New Writing during, during, during the war. And there was a sense that, that there was a sense for a long time that there'd been no writing by working class writers of any merit whatsoever. And Samuel Hines is the Auden generation published in 1972 actually just says that. I mean, that it's a one sentence dismissal. Well, there was no writing by working class writers of any value during the 1930s, you know, mm. full stop. Which is, you know, manifestly not true. So, but that was the ideological viewpoint at the time. At the same time, and linked, I suppose, to to the Cold War and perhaps the cultural Cold War and the funding of magazines like Encounter and, and Steam Spender, there's there's a kind of um, celebration of modernism as kind of well, we know there's a, the history sort of abstract sort of Jackson Pollock type modernism as not actually having a kind of political kind of obvious political dimension but there's also spender writing about literary modernism and setting literary modernism up against kind of what he calls contemporary writing you know writing that is not modernist and the modernist the kind of high modernist canon gets built during the 50s and the early 60s in the kind of classic cold war period and and yeah i think we you know that's clearly an ideological mm. kind of kind of structure and what and that's the period where those aspects even of 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 you know Joyce and Wolf get kind of excluded and mm. you know although they're obviously you know political um writers that in some ways I would argue fit better with um with the uh, the likes of um Grassic Gibbon and John Summerfield than they do you know with the with with the other kind of high you know members of the high modernist canon mm. so um in some ways I think we're all I mean I don't want to go into the history of kind of reception of modernist studies, but I mean, that's kind of you know, one of the things that's been happening over the last 15 years, kind of mm. reconfiguration of modernist studies away from that kind of Cold War crystallization of it. Mm. I suppose, I mean, because you, you talk also about like the 
the various sort of uh, political contexts for uh, critical writing about the 30s being sort of um, you know, Thatcher and and so on, uh, which I think is the I think it's the anniversary of her death. Today. Oh right, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, it's also the. Uh, um, the fact that you're writing this book uh well this book was originally published in 2017 uh and i kind of and now it's being uh published in paperback two years later and it because the conclusion is written sort of write-ups at the moment of uh i think i think you you just talk about i think trump has just got in it's obviously we just had the, the referendum and and i suppose especially linking into some of the the discussions we we're having earlier on about um mass observations uh hope to create a way of connecting with people that wasn't predicated on populism uh and so my question really is how if you were going to read you know, redraft that conclusion now it being right up to the moment two years later you would if you think about it any differently um well i mean the temptation is to say that things have got worse um <clears throat> i'm not sure that's that's a useful conclusion um i'm not saying things haven't got worse in some senses in terms of austerity and the effects and so on but i suppose part of the argument of the book is the need to think over a longer time span so Mm. you know one of the ways of thinking about the contemporary is it's a longer it's a longer period you know our contemporary goes back to well even the late 19th century in some ways you know we're still working through the same it's about the you know it's about the um effectively giving working class men and as opposed to just upper middle class men and also all of women and you know a say in in kind of political things and that and that's obviously a very simplistic view we, we could expand that intersectionally to talk about you know uh, race gender sexuality the whole the whole the whole range and obviously one of the key contexts now is if you're talking about proletariat globally i mean they're you know women women of color from the southern hemisphere largely uh, so there's a huge shift in that respect i just think uh, so what i do say in that in in that conclusion is that the 30s provides us resources for thinking about these questions interesting ways of thinking about how um, an intersectional intersubjective politics could be could be structured that got shut off by the welfare state so in some ways what i want to say what i'm saying is although Part of the problems of, you know, certainly in, 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 in Britain that we're facing at the moment is the gradual disintegration of the welfare state. The solution is not really to re to rebuild that, and I don't think you, you can because it assumes a whole load of normative assumptions that, you know, we no longer we no longer have. It's to try and get at this kind of intersubjective set of relations that was in that were in the thirties and kind of, you know, kind of build on that society which in some ways i think is is happening in a number of areas and one of the areas um i mean you can talk about different areas kind of certain avant-garde experimental kind of practice uh in relation to kind of working working class and uh i don't know maybe queer identities is happening with you were talking about the the earlier episode of of, of this show but another way it's happening is in in the world of science fiction and fantasy which Mm. is uh, an area that i'm more active in in terms of um following and kind of reviewing it and making uh and then that's why i'm writing this other book the science fiction um futures of of modernism because i think it shows a more way though those those that politics can be realized and you can refer to the history of you know you know uh writers of color like samuel delaney uh octavia butler nk jemison more recently there's a whole and that, that in those books i see those books as the future of proletarian modernism so mm. that, that's in some ways the new book will be the revised conclusion so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how that uh connects into the work of, of wolf as well that's a, that's a really fascinating idea and so hopefully <laughs> hopefully next year uh with boonesbury uh, <laughs> i think yeah, yeah we'll see. <laughs> um so thanks so much uh nick Hubble. uh the book is available uh, online, all, well, all, all good retailers, and, and I think the Edinburgh University Bookshop for eleven ninety nine. Uh, you can get yeah. and um, next week uh, um, Juliet is is, take, is is back uh, with a show uh, on with Stuart Holm, Lizzie Homerson, uh and Bridget Penny on uh, bookworks and seminar books. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Um, 
uh, yeah, we'll as usual we'll post links to everything we've discussed on the Twitter uh, and after the when we do the SoundCloud uh, podcast version of this. Uh, so to Nick's book and all of the um, the various links. Uh, I'm I've been Tom Overson. Follow us on sweet underscore dot two what sweet underscore <laughs> two one two at Twitter. Thanks very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> Pleasure. Resonance 104.4 FM. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.